In this lecture on applied anthropology, we will look at some of the areas of anthropology that are used to help solve human social problems. We'll start with an overview of the history of applied anthropology and its development, beginning with its foundations in colonialism. And we'll then look at some of the local developments within the United States of the field of applied anthropology, including activities by some of the famous founders of anthropology, such as Franz Boas, as well as some of the later developments that are known as industrial anthropology, when anthropologists began to apply their skills in the study of workplace environments. We'll look at how these foundations were expanded in World War II, and in particular in the subsequent international developments in what's known as development anthropology, in which the technologies and knowledge of the Western world were then transferred to third world societies to enhance their overall economic and social development. We'll look at how these roles of anthropologists mediating between local communities, national governments, and international agencies and concerns ultimately led to a crisis in applied anthropology, a crisis based on concerns about the ethical issues surrounding using knowledge about other people and their cultures to produce change, and questions that were raised about to whom are we responsible when we use our knowledge in fomenting cultural change. This crisis led to a demise in applied anthropology, but then in the 1970s, a resurgence when anthropology as an applied discipline was once again developed within the United States. We'll look at some of these developments, particularly in the areas of advocacy and business and corporate anthropology, and then in medical anthropology, which will be in a subsequent lecture. I just wanted to sort of give you a sense of what applied anthropology can involve by a brief set of comments about some of my own applied activities. Uh, medical anthropology is an area I've been engaged for many years, beginning with teaching in medical schools, uh, teaching in nursing programs, and teaching in uh, public health programs, where understandings of culture are fundamental to the kinds of adaptations that nurses, physicians, and others need to make to their patients. We'll look in the next lecture at some of these specific applications. I've also been involved in a variety of aspects of cross-cultural training. How do you become more proficient in dealing with people from other cultures? I've provided these kinds of training programs for Motorola, uh, for Human Relations Commissions in California, uh, for McDonnell Douglas, as well as for a variety of school districts, basically teaching teachers, negotiators, cross-cultural managers, some of the fundamental skills that come from anthropological perspectives and enhance our ability to relate more effectively to people in other groups. More recently, I've been involved in a community development project with a Mexican university, where an underprivileged community that was considered to be a hotbed of crime and delinquency became the focus of a variety of university programs. In essence, what we did was to take what was like an internship requirement for all the different majors in the university and found projects that the students could provide in this community to enhance the quality of their life. It included things as far ranging as putting a teacher in a school that didn't have a mathematics teacher for third graders, to providing sports uh, teams and uh, tournaments, to providing uh, opportunities for uh, adult education, uh, to providing legal assistance in the community and health education programs. So basically using the knowledge of what the community needed to find a way to interface it with university resources. One of the other things I've been involved with for almost two decades now is the concept of the cultural defense in criminal law. 
And this is basically an extension of the reasonable person concept that is embedded in American law. What is determinant of a person's guilt is whether or not a reasonable person would have behaved the same way in the same circumstances. So for instance, if you hear a noise downstairs at night and you think someone's breaking into your home and you get your gun and you go downstairs and all of a sudden you see somebody coming at you and you shoot and kill them and it turns out that it was your next door neighbor's kid who was doing a prank, well, you're not going to be charged with murder. Anybody who is basically approached by someone at night in their home and they fear for their life has the right to act in ways that uh, will defend their person. There are other aspects of extenuating and mitigating circumstances that are also brought into criminal law. So I've uh, provided expert witness testimony in about a half dozen cases and have provided affidavits in another half dozen that have brought uh, cultural information to the court's attention that has been used in deciding not guilt or innocence, but more of the mitigating circumstances that may reduce charges. And I've been involved in international business activities for friends and associates doing uh, business in Mexico and Chile, Bolivia and Spain, basically helping them understand what are the fundamentals of doing business in another culture? What's the business culture like? And what's necessary to adapt to be locally effective? And this is just a small range of the kinds of activities that applied anthropologists might do. Indeed, when we look at what applied anthropologists do, uh, the flippant answer might be everything. Anthropologists have been engaged in everything from working in the federal government, being consultants and liaisons, working for international agencies, working for film companies, working in school districts. Um, you'll even find them living in people's homes doing observation of how it is that they address certain aspects of lifestyle and technology interactions. So we'll look at some of the ways in which applied anthropology is developed in the United States to give you a sense of the range of things that people can do with anthropological perspectives in order to enhance the lives and well-being of people. So applied anthropology is basically making anthropological knowledge and perspectives useful to people, allowing them to address real-life problems by taking concepts of culture and cultural adaptation into consideration. While some people would consider applied anthropology to be a fifth field within the discipline, most people see applied anthropology as part of four-field anthropology. It's embedded in physical anthropology, archaeology, linguistics, and cultural anthropology. So for instance, in physical anthropology, we have areas such as evolutionary medicine, that look at contemporary human diseases as a function of ancient human adaptations. The real popular area of physical anthropology is forensic medicine. And all the CSI movies and series that have come out in recent years attest to the popularity that forensic anthropology is getting because of its very real-life applications. Archaeology has CRM, or cultural resource management, that's concerned with how we uh, preserve, protect, and represent artifacts, and they're engaged in, for instance, museum exhibitions as well as a variety of excavation activities designed to protect the past. Uh, some people engage in garbage studies. How do you study human uh, consumption patterns? What do people buy at the grocery store, and what do they waste? Well, William Rafty pioneered garbage studies, looking at people's trash to understand their behaviors. And there's also a variety of studies of ecological change that archaeologists are engaged in. And uh, environmental impact statements are often 
uh, developed based on the research and findings of archaeologists. Linguists have been involved in applied anthropology in areas such as cultural survival, helping resuscitate dying languages, helping bring ancient cultural traditions back into the school systems for Native Americans. And in some cases, applied anthropologists have been involved in helping protect Native American rights by establishing their traditional tribal uh, regions and territories and helping them establish their claims with the federal government that this should be their land based upon possession since time immemorial. And cultural anthropology does just about everything. When we talk about the different subfields of anthropology, psychological anthropology, economic anthropology, political anthropology, etc., all of these have applied dimensions where anthropologists are engaged and using their perspectives, their methods, and their knowledge to help solve human problems that are based upon the difficulties created by cultural difference. In a very real sense, applied anthropology has a kind of postmodern dimension, which is to say it's helping to solve the problems of modernization, the extension of national societies over other groups, the production of social problems because of social disintegration, and a variety of other activities that are basically premised on the notion that people's difficulties in life often have to do with ways in which culture shapes or limits their perceptions of opportunities and solutions to problems. When we look at applied anthropology, a historical perspective leads us to conclude that like anthropology as a whole, much of applied anthropology has its roles in colonialism. And indeed, we can see the roots of applied anthropology in the activities of colonial administrators, military administrators, religious organizations that were trying to understand the so-called natives that they were interacting with. In essence, the business of running colonies was to try to control the natives in some sense, and understanding something about their culture was very important for administrative purposes. For instance, there's an enormous bonfire going on in the village. There's hundreds of people running around and dancing and screaming and yelling. What should you do if you're responsible for peace and security in the area? Should you send troops or should you send presents? Is it a rebellion about to start or is it just a birthday party for the chief's daughter? So understanding the local culture and figuring out the appropriate response really was a colonial concern that in some ways has set the basis for applied anthropology and unfortunately has contributed to a somewhat negative image of applied anthropology within the discipline as a whole. While today the majority of new anthropologists are engaged in applied anthropology, many of the older anthropologists often view applied anthropology as a kind of corruption of the discipline. And we'll see that they have reason to be concerned because of how anthropology has cycled through concerns about the ethicality of applying cultural knowledge and dealing with others. Within the United States, we can see the roots of applied anthropology in the 19th century activities of the Bureau of Indian Affairs that was responsible for administering the Native American reservations and basically interfacing the federal government with local tribes. Uh, many early publications of the reports of the Bureau of American Ethnology were sponsored by the government and done by anthropologists. And while the anthropologists often had a more pure knowledge concerns, well, what were these cultures like? In many cases, administrators were concerned with understanding the culture so they knew how to control them, or which groups might be dangerous, uh, what changes might be able to be imposed upon people to 
force them to acculturate and adopt to American society. In the early 20th century, applied anthropology in America took a slightly different twist. Franz Boas, often considered the founder of American anthropology, was actually hired by the federal government to study an important social problem of the early 20th century. And this was a concern with the inferior races, as they were viewed, coming to America. These were the Italians, the Irish, the Eastern Europeans. And these were viewed as inherently inferior on biological grounds, different races than the white people in America. So Boaz was commissioned to study these immigrants and to determine whether or not they really were inferior to other Americans. And his research showed two principal things. One was that the immigrants themselves were physically inferior to our, our average Americans, smaller in stature, um, smaller in weight and size. But he also studied the children of the immigrants who grew up in America, and he discovered they did not differ significantly from the size of the children born in America to people who lived here. So what he concluded was that the so-called inferior stature of the immigrants had nothing to do with biology, but rather was a consequence of nutrition and the enhanced nutritional opportunity that the immigrants had once they came to the Americas. Perhaps the most significant development of applied anthropology um, in the 1930s was the implications of the Indian Reorganization Act that was in, uh, created by John Collier. And John Collier was a man who was concerned about the way in which Native Americans were being treated in America. And under President Roosevelt's administration, he was appointed as the director of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And he relied extensively upon anthropologists in reorganizing the way in which the federal government dealt with Native Americans. His early activities included changing the governmental structures to create democracies for Native American groups. He also engaged in a variety of forms of economic development. His legacy continued into the 1940s, in which time anthropologists became involved in Native American land claims. It turns out that about two-thirds of Native American lands were taken from them after 1890. And so Native Americans then faced the daunting challenge of trying to establish their legitimate claims to lands, often requiring that they document ways in which they had affected the landscape over hundreds of years. So anthropologists were involved in doing research, documenting their presence in certain areas, and providing evidence for the federal government to show that Native American had rights to compensation. Indeed, sometimes anthropologists became primary sources of Native American cultural heritage. Sometimes Native Americans had lost their language, had no surviving members who knew their traditions and their mythologies. And sometimes an anthropologist had recorded this 20, 30, 40, or 50 years before. So anthropologists often became sources of either compiling contemporary knowledge or helping Native Americans search out information about their roots and engage in tribal revitalizations that enabled them to once again claim their cultural heritage. So in this epoch, anthropologists became more and more engaged in policy anthropology and advocacy, in which they took roles of helping people who were oppressed, particularly Native Americans, make claims for their cultural rights and their social rights before the federal government and helping them find ways to get assistance to find ways to extend federal programs, to find grants for internal development, to create schooling systems that would help preserve Native American 
culture and heritage. There was another important development of applied anthropology in the 1930s, and many people see this as really being one of the most important foundations of applied anthropology, that of industrial anthropology. Anthropologists were brought in to study the General Electric facility in Cicero, Illinois. And they were brought in because an anomaly had occurred in research findings. They had had psychologists and sociologists engage in studies that were designed to help enhance productivity. What can you do in the workplace to make the workers more effective? Perhaps the clearest anomaly was in terms of lighting. How much light do workers need in order to be more productive than they are on the average? Well, it turned out it didn't make any difference whether you made the lights brighter or made the lights dimmer. People were more productive. In fact, you could turn the lights down to where people could barely see, and they were outperforming the ordinary um, assembly line people. How can this be a consequence of the light alone? So anthropologists were brought in to try to understand this phenomenon. And what they contributed to is an understanding of the informal culture of business organizations. Normally, businesses think of their organizational structure in terms of an organizational tree and a set of you know, corporate codes or, or you know, business codes that people are expected to follow and chains of command and procedures manuals. Well, it turns out that this wasn't necessarily the most important factors that were affecting people's behavior. Why were people outperforming ordinary assembly line workers with either high light or low light conditions? Well, it was because they now felt that somebody was concerned about them, somebody cared. And so anthropologists helped initiate a revolution in management, a revolution in management that shifted the classic management approach of rewards and punishments to a human relations management approach that emphasized the importance of how you relate to people, and recognizing that it was this interpersonal dynamic, making people feel that you cared about them, that was the true motivator in much of workplace performance. So people performed better under high light or low light conditions because they were being implicitly given the message that we care about what affects you. And this led to lots of studies of the informal business culture. How do businesses actually operate versus the way that they're supposed to in terms of policy and procedures? And a recognition that this informal business culture was a significant part of the success of corporations and companies. The informal culture was often the most significant factor in terms of whether or not workers felt a commitment to the system, whether they really respected their employers and were willing to work for the company, or whether they felt like the company didn't respect them and they were just going to do the job but not worry about whether it was done well. Another significant involvement of applied anthropology is often overlooked because it really became a kind of academic endeavor. But beginning in the 1930s and increasing in the 1940s, anthropologists became involved in schools of business. They were being hired to teach about international business, foreign economic systems, etc. And as a consequence of anthropologist influence, a very fundamental feature has become standard within business texts. And this is often embodied in the concept of the environment of business. For businesses to be successful, they must be well adapted to their environment. 
Well, that doesn't mean how hot or cold it is outside. If you look at what's referred to as the environment of business, they're talking about the local economic system, the political situation, how religion impacts work behavior, work cultures, values, educational systems, the kinds of things that we talk about as anthropologists in terms of the major dimensions of cultural systems. And another important thing that this early involvement of anthropologists in business created was a recognition of the need to look both at national culture and business culture, and in particular to recognize that business cultures in any given society are a reflection of the broader national cultural dynamics. That business has not done the same thing everywhere. That there are important differences in how people calculate cost, depreciate cost, uh, value personnel, manage personnel decisions, um, allocate authority, make decisions, etc. That the very basic organizational structures of businesses and how they operate and what kind of people are considered to be good leaders is more a function of national culture and its specific manifestations in a local business culture than it is of any universal principles of management. So this was an extension of the human relations perspective in management that emphasized that different people needed to be addressed in different kinds of ways, that different management styles and skills were important in different cultures, that different negotiation strategies were uh, valued in one culture versus another, and that ultimately relations, communication, management, negotiation, leadership, authority were all culturally determined and manifested in culturally specific ways in different groups. There was another significant strain of applied anthropology that began in the 1930s and continued into the 1940s as a direct consequence of World War II activities. One of the early developments was really more of an academic research approach, the creation of the human relations area files under the supervision of anthropologist George Peter Murdoch. This was basically an effort to compile all known sources of information about specific cultural groups and to organize this information into a variety of cultural categories. So for instance, compiling all the information that was known about the uh, 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 specific group. Uh, could be the Australian Aborigines or a, a group living in uh, Kazakhstan or a group living uh, in some place in China. What do we know about their subsistence activities? What do we know about their economy, their political structure and organization, their uh, military or warfare activities? And organizing all the information around a specific topic, including translating foreign documents into English. This was initially funded by the Navy, and it was out of direct intelligence interest in knowing about peoples in other parts of the world. If we're going to go to war somewhere, we need to know something about this culture. If we're going to seek allies in a particular area, we need to know something about the people there. And this was in large part motivated by a recognition that the Soviet Union included more than a hundred different cultural groups, many of which were actively resisting the Sovietization of their societies. And so anthropologists became key sources of information about how these cultures functioned and provided a basis for translation and other kinds of cultural interchange activities. Indeed, one of the most important things that anthropologists did during World War II 
was to serve as translators and interpreters, uh, not so much at the level of person to person, but at the broader level of intercultural communication and understandings. What are the Germans really like? What motivates them? What are the Japanese like? And this created some important applications of anthropological knowledge. Some of the things that the Army did also reflected knowledge of cultural diversity within our own society. One of the important things that the military needs to achieve is having a secure communications system that can't be broken by others. Others can tap into it, pick up radio waves or telegraph transmissions, but can they make sense of it? Well, one of the things that the uh, U.S. military did in collaboration with anthropologists and Native American groups was to create a special code system known as the Navajo Code Talkers that used Navajo language and a metaphorical extension of that language to communicate military intelligence. So for instance, different kinds of bugs were, the words for them were used to refer to different kinds of military vehicles and different kinds of flying insects and flying animals were used to refer to different kinds of military aircraft. So the Navajos could speak on the radio, communicate along the radio waves, and even if the Japanese picked this up, and even if they could translate Navajo, they wouldn't know what the words were used to refer to in terms of military hardware. So it was one of the successful aspects of using culture as part of the military effort. Anthropologists were also involved in uh, programs that help boost troop morale and civilian morale, but their more important roles was probably in prisoner management strategies. How to effectively use prisoners of war and manage them in ways that would reduce the conflict and the cost of keeping POWs under control. One of the significant things that anthropologists were involved in was trying to understand the Japanese mentality. One of the things that was part of the image of the Japanese uh, was promoted by these kamikaze pilots, Japanese who were willing to take their airplanes and fly them down the smokestacks of U.S. ships to blow them up, sacrificing their lives for the war effort. We had this image that the Japanese would do anything to protect their country. Yet, when the Japanese were captured, one of the things that often happened was that the Japanese would start volunteering all kinds of strategic military information. You didn't have to prod them or torture them. They seemed quite willing to share this knowledge. Was this really true things that they were telling? Why would the Japanese, who were such fanatical nationalists, all of a sudden become such friendly collaborators? Well, anthropologists helped put this in perspective and enabled military intelligence to rely upon these kinds of divulgences. What the anthropologists were able to do was point out that uh, Japanese POW was dead. They were culturally dead. They were dishonored, disgraced. They could not go back to their society because they weren't supposed to be POWs. They were supposed to have died fighting for their country. Now they need a new social network to validate their self-worth. Collaborating with the Americans was one way of once again building a network, a community of people that valued them. One of the more important aspects of uh, anthropology's involvement following World War II had to do with creating new trust territories like Micronesia and Melanesia. Many areas of the world had never been formed into state systems. How were these thousands of islands across the uh, southern Pacific Ocean going to be organized into new national units? 
obviously culture was a concern. Well, what were the cultural similarities and differences in these areas? Knowledge about culture played a significant role in defining the boundaries that were created for these new nations and trust territories following World War II. So during World War II, most anthropologists reputedly engaged in the war effort in one way or another. This was viewed as part of a, a national commitment, patriotism and helping our country. But as we'll see in the subsequent decades, this idea that anthropologists would work for their governments or be engaged in war activities was increasingly called into question and ethical concerns were raised about the uh, legitimacy of anthropologists doing these kinds of things. Following World War II, we see the development anthropology phase emerge, a set of activities in which anthropologists engage in projects to change the way humans interact with their ecosystems. Development anthropology involved a variety of projects to alter the natural environment and man-made environment to help development occur, to increase the economic activities, to enhance local productivity, to enhance the quality of life, to bring in rural water systems and rural electrification and roads, and to, in general, try to help move people who were living and hunting, gathering in simple agricultural societies into the modern world. Some of the things that anthropologists also did as part of development anthropology was to study the impacts of these kinds of projects on local people. What were the impacts of a uh, rural electrification project? Or what were the consequences of creating an irrigation system? So social impact research became part of what anthropologists did within the context of development anthropology. They also helped create things like new agricultural systems, uh, help people establish animal husbandry and find other ways to uh, modify the environment, either through irrigation or flood control, to enhance productivity. They often were engaged in uh, reforestry projects or forestry development projects or other activities to increase the energy available to local communities. And they were engaged in construction processes focused on housing, schools, medical facilities, etc. Why is culture important in these areas? Well, people don't just live in houses. They live with families. They live in communities. What kind of housing is going to be consistent with the way in which people live? For instance, you and I would probably think, well, you need to build a house for each family, mom, dad, and the kids. But what if people live in a patrilineal clan system? Well, they're likely to think it's normal to live with their brothers and their sister-in-laws and their parents that perhaps a house with a bedroom for mom and dad and one for the boys and one for the girls isn't really what's needed. Maybe much larger multi-family structures are going to be what's consistent. Or if you're going to bring water into an area so that people have, say, a place to wash their clothes, what makes sense? Well, we would say, well, you bring water to everybody's house. But is this the way people use water? For instance, do women wash their clothes alone? Well, some projects that just ran water to everybody's house and put in a wash basin because they wanted to reduce soap contamination in the rivers found that the projects really weren't successful. Women still took their clothes down to the river to wash them. Why? Well, this is when they had the opportunity to interact with other women and to talk about things. So a communal washing area would have much more likely been accepted than the wash basins that were put in each individual household. 
Often anthropologists' roles involve the broad concept of mediation. Mediating, say, between international agencies and national cultures, and mediating between the interest of a national culture and the interest of local communities or indigenous peoples. Often anthropologists were brought in to help make sure that the project somehow fit at the local level, that there was going to be an effective transfer of knowledge from other nations or international development agencies to local communities. But in the long run, anthropologists began to turn the intentions of international agencies and national governments on their head. Instead of trying to make sure that people accepted national development programs, anthropologists often felt it was more important to try to communicate local perspectives to national governments and international agencies. What kind of agencies were involved in these processes? Well, Agency for International Development that funded technology transfers employed anthropologists to help assure that technologies were well integrated into local communities and help them understand what was necessary to make the technology transfer successful. The World Health Organization hired many anthropologists to help create uh, rural health programs, immunization programs, primary care clinics in remote areas figuring out what kinds of clinics need to be created and where they should be located and how to convince people that they should use them. The International Bank began to hire anthropologists. Today they hire several dozen anthropologists to carry out evaluation research. If you, for instance, give a country $900 million to develop a rural electrical system, how are you going to know if they actually did that? Are you going to send a banker in a three-piece suit down to Nicaragua to try to ascertain that they actually have strung out you know, 300,000 miles of electrical cable? Well, the guy in the suit's probably not going to be able to figure this out. You need someone who knows the local environment, speaks the languages, can negotiate between villages, get guides, and basically do the on-the-ground research. So anthropologists are involved in a variety of levels of appraisal of projects carried out by the International Bank. In the 1950s, the State Department began to rely upon anthropologists to train their diplomats. They began to recognize that you couldn't just use your own culture as a basis for relating to others. Of course, our State Department often still does that, but since the 1950s, anthropologists have been engaged in training members of the diplomatic corps to understand the local cultures and figure out how to work with them more effectively. And the failure to do this has produced a lot of crises in our government where uh, an unintended cultural insult has sometimes turned a weak ally into an enemy. And in the context of relief agencies, anthropologists have had many roles. And these roles are often motivated by anthropologists concerned with the well-being of the people that they have studied, trying to give something back to these communities by facilitating the interaction between international agencies and these local communities in terms of the provision of needed resources, food, the development of farming activities, uh, clean water systems, etc. For the most part, these agencies have often viewed the problem as being one of technology transfer. How do you get the poor, primitive, undeveloped people to accept something that's better? And so anthropologists have been engaged in trying to uh, provide this transfer of knowledge, sometimes creating whole new languages. So for instance, when Caterpillar wanted to take its tractors and make them available internationally, 
uh, it recognized that it faced a challenge of maintenance. Who was going to maintain these tractors? Well, you had to create training manuals to train local people to do it. But most of the vocabulary in a Caterpillar maintenance manual didn't exist in most of these languages. So you had to make up a new language. But it didn't make sense just to arbitrarily create a new language. You needed to create a specialized language that was linked back into the existing language structure and terms so that it made sense to people that they would use certain words. So anthropologists, for instance, helped Caterpillar create specialized languages and language training manuals so that they could train people in foreign countries to maintain this equipment. However, the most important aspects of the anthropological involvement were engaged with trying to deal with the interpersonal dynamics, the conflicts that often existed when two cultures came into interaction. What they helped show was that the primary failures in technology transfers were not a result of any incompetence on a technical level. The representatives sent from the companies to present new uh, equipment knew how the equipment worked. What they didn't know was how to work with local people. So anthropologists were engaged in training people for cross-cultural adaptation, training people to learn how to be effective cross-cultural communicators and how to adopt appropriate teaching styles and interactional styles with people in other cultures. One of the things that the role of anthropologists as mediator involved was trying to get the natives to accept change. And one of the things that international agencies often focused on was the local resistance of people to innovation and change. They often saw the culture as being an inhibitory factor in getting people to do something new and better. So for instance, uh, people may not go to get immunizations for a certain disease because they think that disease is caused by witchcraft. doesn't have anything to do with germs. So how do you change people's thinking? Or in some cases, they want to implement new public health standards. Well, how do you get people to understand something about contaminated water? The water looks pure and clear. How can it still have germs in it? Well, they don't have a germ concept. But do they have something similar? Is there some concept of pollution, for instance, that can be used in educational materials to make people more likely to change their behavior? There was also issues of the local power structure. For instance, many times the local healers resisted the implementation of new health clinics because they felt that there was a competition here. So anthropologists pointed out the importance of involving the local healers in the development of new clinics so that there was not an exclusive relationship between the two dimensions. So local healers could understand what kinds of conditions that were perhaps best sent to doctors and understand which kind of conditions may still be effectively treated within traditional medicine. And of course, there were issues about the psychological perceptions of change. People don't readily change unless something motivates them to. What clicks it for people? What makes them realize that something new is going to be advantageous to them? Now, while much of the attention of the international agencies was on the issue of local resistance, what anthropologists helped do was to shift the focus from development anthropology to what some call the anthropology of development, studying development from an anthropological perspective. And this often shifted the focus from how do we get the natives to accept change to raising questions about was change good? 
Who was going to be benefited by change? What were going to be the benefits for local populations? Were change programs really going to have an impact upon the broad masses of the poor in society? Or were some of these change programs really going to benefit the elite, the neo-colonial dominant sectors of the society? And what about environmental destruction? What about cultural destruction? How do local people view these change projects? And were change activities really going to benefit local people? So anthropologists often help shift the perspective from how do we get the local people to change to changing the ways in which national and international agencies attempted to impose change projects that may not be beneficial for local people unless they're adapted to the specific needs of local groups. The context of engagement with these change projects led to a variety of concerns within anthropology. Were there really good grounds for implementing changes? Well, sometimes it seems like there were. What could the problem be with convincing people to accept uh, immunizations and inoculations? At this point in time, some areas of the third world experienced an 80% mortality rate by age six. Four out of five children were dead from preventable diseases. Why not immunize these children and keep them from dying? Well, people didn't necessarily understand that if you keep children from dying, all of a sudden the population growth spirals out of control. And literally, kids that you save from childhood diseases are now starving to death. What's good is an immunization program if you haven't got a plan in place to deal with the increased demands for land, for growing food, and food. Irrigation projects seem like a good idea. People can grow two or three crops a year instead of one if they have water available. But some people later recognize that irrigation projects cause disease and death. By building irrigation canals that held water year-round, snails that carried parasitic diseases migrated dozens of miles, 40 or 50 miles, and were able to reproduce and spread their diseases in local communities. And now most of the adults have liver flukes and are going to die within a few years because the irrigation canals brought in diseases. So the idea that we should just engage in development began to be questioned. Sometimes developmental projects seem more like ecological destruction rather than development that help local communities. And today we might ask the same questions. For instance, Indian casinos in the U.S. have become very popular. Many people have the perceptions that Native Americans now have become very rich. In reality, very few tribes have made much money off of casinos. Why? Because most casinos have been managed by outsiders. So someone who runs the casino in Atlantic City gets paid a million dollars a year to run an India casino because who else knows how to manage these complex operations? And often, unfortunately, these people are ripping off the casinos rather than managing for the people's good. So there's often questions about how cultural knowledge is used. Is it used for helping people or is it used to exploit them? For instance, suppose a Japanese company wants to put a fish processing plant in Alaska. It makes more sense to process the fish here because they want to sell it in the U.S. anyway. Well, trying to figure out where to locate that fish processing plant might be a task that an anthropologist was uh, invited to do. Find a place that's got good access to the ocean, a, a local village with enough people that are old enough to work in the processing plant, and they'll put the plant in this place. 
apart from issues about the ecological degradation and the contamination, there might be other important issues that an anthropologist has to address. For instance, once the fish processing plant is in place, who are you going to hire? Well, what if the company says, look, you have to help us find the perfect employee. Who's the perfect employee? Uh, well, we don't want anybody who's in the local political system because we don't want their political uh, influence in our workplace. Uh, nobody who's the head of a large lineage or clan, we don't want their power in our workplace. Uh, nobody who has radical political views or uh, belongs to a union, we don't want a union in our workplace. And Well, who do you want to hire? Well, we'd like to hire orphans, uh, widows, uh, single men, uh, isolates. Well, is it ethical to go find these kinds of people and give the list of those names to the company? What happens if the isolated and marginal people in the society are the primary beneficiaries of this new plant? Does it destroy the local social organization, undermine the political system, turn the political tables in a society, turn the weak into powerful and vice versa? Is this good for this culture? Or would it lead to a cultural disintegration and breakdown? The ethical issues really came to a head in the Cold War, this conflict between the US and Russia that played out in the 50s and 60s. And anthropologists were increasingly recruited for spying activities, particularly in the third world, where insurrections and revolutions and rebellions were often taking place against the dictatorial governments that had existed ever since colonial periods in Latin America. Anthropologists were often being debriefed when they returned from the field. Who did they talk to? Who were the local labor organizers? Who were the people agitating for land reform? And this kind of information was often turned over by our national government to foreign national governments who then sought out these people and killed them. In fact, one of my uh, teachers in graduate school had worked for many years in Guatemala. And what he discovered was that every year after he left the field, the people that he worked most closely with disappeared, their bodies often turning up tortured and mangled by the death squads. His mere presence in talking to people created a risk for their lives. So who were we going to help? Who were our responsibilities to? Do we help our National Security Administration as anthropologists? Do we help foreign national governments? Or are we really responsible to the people that we live with, work with, and write our dissertations and research proposals about? So this led to a set of concerns about anthropologists' ethical responsibility. And what a statement of ethics formulated in the 1950s emphasized was that anthropologists were primarily responsible to the people we studied. We must protect their welfare, their dignity, their well-being, and their cultural traditions. Regardless of who pays us, whether it's our government, a private funding agency, or even a foreign national government, we need to make sure that what we do is of benefit to the people that are the target population. And we have to be concerned with what kind of changes are being imposed, and do people really understand what these projects are about? So what this meant was that anthropologists had to involve the people that they were studying and making programs for. 
They had to make sure that people were cognizant of the effects of what projects might do to them and that they consented to these kinds of changes and reinforced the notion that anthropologists are responsible to the people that they study, not to whoever employs them. Now this latter point became problematic for many anthropologists who increasingly took on roles in international agencies and foreign governments and even our own government. And so in the 1980s, there was a revision of anthropologist ethical responsibilities to include other concerns, concerns including control of information to avoid harm. For instance, one of my other professors in graduate school did studies of social problems on Native American reservations. He studied things like child abuse and spousal violence and drug addiction and alcoholism and teenage pregnancy. And he was very concerned about what would happen with this information. He didn't want to do a study that some reporter would get a hold of and then say, look, these Indians are just a bunch of you know, drunken uh, whores. They're a bunch of you know, people who have no social values. They're beating up their kids, etc. We should cut off all funding and turn the kids over to state welfare agencies. He didn't want someone taking his research findings and putting them out of context and using them for political ends. So he wrote into all his contracts with the government that he would decide what kind of data was going to be released. He needed to protect the people that he studied. He also was part of a movement to be concerned about what was going to be the appropriate role of anthropologists. Are we only really responsible to our people, as it's often said, or do we have other responsibilities to our profession? And what about to our own national governments when we work in foreign countries? And what about the national governments of other countries? Are we responsible to them as well? So in a revised version of the American Anthropological Association's ethical uh, position, there is now an emphasis upon the need to look at diverse parties and their concerns and requires anthropologists to engage in a relatively delicate balancing act of concerns of many different people when we do research. But these kinds of concerns led to a demise in applied anthropology in the 1950s. And with the growth of academic departments in the 1960s, most anthropologists turned away from applied anthropology. But in the 1970s, there was a major resurgence of applied anthropology and a number of significant growth sectors that have continued to be at the forefront of applied anthropology. One of these is the idea of Policy and advocacy. Anthropologists engage in studying social problems, trying to help local communities who are underprivileged find resources and to create more vigorous uh, cultural systems, solve their problems, find economic resources, deal with health problems, etc. So anthropologists have become increasingly engaged as not only cultural, cultural brokers, but as researchers and evaluators recognizing that many times studying the problems of an ethnic community can't be effectively done with a survey questionnaire. It requires on-the-ground field work, participation in the everyday lives of people to understand the dynamics of their problems. Cultural resource management, um, excavations and museums have become increasingly important aspect of applied anthropology since the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act has required that local Native American groups be consulted in terms of projects that impact them 
and that in many cases, certain kinds of artifacts have to be turned over to them. Another important aspect of the modern development of medical anthropology and the fastest growing area of anthropology as a whole has been apply, uh, medical anthropology. And we will look at this in a separate lecture. Uh, one of the major areas of a medical anthropology that has got attention in recent years has been forensic anthropology, where the tools of physical anthropology and archaeology are used to solve crimes. And there's also been a major growth in business and organizational anthropology, as well as corporate anthropology, dealing with many of the problems that companies face in changing environments, multicultural environments, international activities, cultural mergers of companies, etc. So we'll look at a couple of these areas, particularly advocacy and the uh, aspects of business anthropology. Anthropologists engaged in advocacy address many different kinds of issues, including things such as environmental issues and contamination and environmental impact reports. They do health assessment studies and help build uh, community clinics and other kinds of facilities to enhance the health of local populations. Anthropologists have been engaged for decades in educational anthropology, helping create culturally relevant and sensitive curriculums, uh, teaching in Native American colleges, uh, helping create educational programs to uh, reinvigorate native languages, etc. Anthropologists have been engaged in many aspects of legal anthropology, not only working for senators and for the federal government, but engaged in cultural defenses, as well as a variety of other kinds of civil rights and other kinds of uh, complaints that communities have filed because of violation of their rights by local governments or the federal government. Perhaps one of the broadest areas of advocacy anthropology is in terms of community development. And not only abroad, but here in the United States, anthropologists have been engaged in helping local communities build their resources. For instance, one of my friends has worked for almost 20 years as an applied anthropologist in an agency that provides services for immigrant groups in Oregon. And every year he writes about a dozen different grant applications to the federal government, city governments, state governments, municipal governments, private agencies to not only fund this agency, but to do programs such as, uh, you know, a job uh, training programs, uh, bilingual education programs, uh, maternal health programs, uh, adolescent pregnancy reduction programs and things like this. So in important ways, anthropologists help address social and economic problems. And in some cases, it involves trying to change government policy. How does a government deal with certain kinds of problems? How are urban social problems addressed? And what can be done to reduce some of the impacts that social problems have upon specific ethnic communities? So as advocates, anthropologists may be researchers, they may be spokespersons speaking on behalf of communities to governments or representing them in the context of interaction with government agencies. They often write grants for projects and then they may uh, manage those grants as administrators. They often play the role of a mediator between different ethnic communities, between ethnic communities and governments, between different agencies and ethnic communities. Sometimes they're engaged in training people to be more effective in community advocacy or perhaps as community health researchers. And they have many different roles in terms of trying to alter people's behavior. So for instance, social marketing is an area of adv advocacy and uh, medical anthropology, where anthropologists help create public health messages 
that are targeted to specific populations will get their attention and help change their behavior in ways that will help prevent the transfer of disease. Another major aspect of applied anthropology, although one that is not as widely accepted within the anthropological discipline, is what's referred to as business anthropology. That will include, broadly speaking, uh, industrial anthropology, organizational anthropology, corporate anthropology. All of these areas are concerned with how does culture affect the operation of a business or an organization. These developments in anthropology have to a great degree been spurred by environmental changes, the increasing globalization of business and the increasingly multicultural nature of our societies. Anthropologists have had an important role in businesses because of global opportunities and global needs. Companies today normally cannot survive just on what they do in the United States if they're a major corporation. They need to take advantage of international markets. But these international markets often pose considerable problems. For instance, most American businessmen sent overseas for one or two year assignments can't complete the assignment. Something breaks down. They can't function in a foreign environment. It's a big risk to send somebody overseas. Who do you pick? Who's the best person for an international assignment? A well-established middle-aged manager with a wife and two adolescent kids? Send them to Bahrain or Saudi Arabia. You've got a recipe for disaster. This family is probably not a good adjustment choice. Who do you pick? Who's going to be successful in representing a company overseas? May well be you, even if you're a French major or you're studying European history. You might be much better suited for a personnel position for a multinational corporation operating in France than somebody with an MBA. And companies are increasingly recognizing the importance of a broad set of social skills for people who go overseas. Even companies who just want to operate in America have to be concerned with cultural dynamics. For instance, studies have indicated that somewhere around 80% of all new employees in the last several decades have been women and minorities. Workplaces that used to be all white males now have to deal with a variety of other cultures. And this often produces cultural clashes. How do you get your employees from India and your um, Japanese employees to work together in a company? Uh, how do you create um, an interaction that makes them feel comfortable and want to stay? Businesses are also concerned with sector marketing. How do you market to African Americans or Mexican Americans? And how should your greeting cards be different for Cuban Americans than Mexican Americans? Hallmark knows they had to find that out because a lot of the greeting cards that they had created based upon their Mexican market didn't make sense to the Caribbean cultures. And they had to create a separate set of expressions that were consistent with the way in which people in that culture expressed their concerns or congratulations, etc. Corporate anthropology has been increasingly an area of growth because of a concern about the current environment. And this current environment has to do with dealing with a variety of changes in corporate structures because of mergers and larger scale operations, sometimes diagnosing management problems, supply chain problems, and service problems fall under the radar for ordinary evaluation processes. Anthropologists often 
go undercover to try to find out what problems are. They hang out at the water cooler in a business to hear the gossip. They figure out where the company employees go drink after work to hang out in the bars and see what they say when they think the boss won't know. They engage in a variety of on-the-ground study processes to get at how people view problems and often can solve them by getting at what people won't tell you in a formal evaluation. There's also a concern with creating a business culture for the 21st century. Businesses have always known you need to adapt to your environment. Well, what is the environment of 21st century business? It's not the industrial era paradigm that was the foundational systems upon which most American corporations were built. We're no longer engaged in industrial production. We're in the post-industrial society, the communications and information era. What kind of corporations are going to be most successful in these environments? And of course, there's the issue of dealing with cultural diversity. How do you not only attract qualified people from other ethnic groups, but keep them working there? Companies often recruit, say, African-Americans to go work at a company in Tucson. But they show up there and there's no community. They feel isolated. They can't make friends. They don't know where they can go to feel a sense of belonging in this place. So they leave. So companies now recognize keeping the best talent. For instance, keeping the best programmers or keeping the best uh, people that can deal with a video programming from Ireland and Brazil and Japan means that companies have to help create a community culture to support their employees. There's also a need to understand specialist behaviors. One of the things that anthropologists have been engaged in in recent years is studying the quants. The quants are these people who are basically mathematicians, economists that program computers to make decisions about the sale of stocks and bonds. How do these people think? Why do they make certain kinds of judgments? Why do they program computers certain ways? How does their you know, informal culture affect the way that they're creating formal algorithms for making decisions about investments and sales? And today, with the continuing corporate mergers, there's often a concern with how do corporations merge their distinct corporate cultures. And it's not unusual to read in the Wall Street Journal that a planned merger of two companies was canceled because they came to the conclusion that their corporate cultures were fundamentally incompatible. They were not going to be able to create this merger. So what are the benefits of an anthropological approach to business? We can say, speak your customer's language. It's not just the language, but the culture itself. Understand what they're saying. Get at their emic perspectives. Know what the natives are doing. It requires ethnography. Get on the ground information. Do your field work. Be there where people are. Be able to make sense of what people do and why. The principles of cultural relativism. Understand what people want, and that it's not just biological needs, but it's cultural needs as well. Put together all the pieces of the puzzle, an interdisciplinary approach that allows you to get the big picture, to see how the cultural system operates, and have local relevance, be embedded in the community, understand what works for them. So anthropologists bring us knowledge about human similarities and differences that help make us more successful in dealing with people of other cultural groups. So in summary, applied anthropology has colonial foundations. And this set the basis for ethical concerns that raise uh, questions about anthropologists' responsibilities, 
which are increasingly challenging when we have many different reference groups that we have to respond to. We live in a global village. What happens in India or Russia or Japan or Israel can have an immediate impact upon our society, on the stock market, on futures, etc. And not only do we have to be concerned with cultural diversity abroad, but cultural diversity exists within the United States. We will likely be a nation of minorities within 30 or 40 years. The people we call minorities today constituting the majority of our populace. How will we function effectively as a culturally pluralistic society? Culture is the foundation for humanity and humanness. How do we keep culture from being a barrier and allow culture to still be a medium of exchange in spite of cultural differences? So there are many global challenges that our nation faces today, as do all nations. And we also have important local impacts of cultural difference. How can we use anthropology to live in a better future? In the next lecture, we'll examine this from the perspectives of medical anthropology and then from the perspectives of applying anthropology, some practical concerns that you all can apply to your own lives to use your understandings of anthropology to more successfully negotiate in the global village and the culturally pluralistic nation in which we live.